Вже весна Карпати вкрила Журавлі вже прилетіли Лиш свою дівчину Любу ми з тобою Не зустріли Billy group from Ukraine called Madheads with a song called Smareka, which translates as spruce tree. But it's not really about a spruce tree. It's about a lady that often happens in Ukrainian folk songs and never are what they seem on the surface. Again, that was Madheads with Smareka. Dobry vechir, shanovni radio suhachi tavitayu vas vsih na radio peredachu nash holos radio krinskoho kurinya. Kotra podiesivam yak svichoina shosubote o shosti hodeni na bahatumovni radio stansi a el trinatia dvatia chmb umisti vancuveri. Primikrefoni pavina makwari diaku yushjo vibule suhachamas yuni vachari tarishale perebutisim noyu nestupnu hodenu me maima dushisikabi novena nasyonishnik prohami. Hello there and welcome to Nash Holos Ukrainian Roots Radio here on AM 1320 CHMB Vancouver. I'm your host, Paulette Demchuk-McCory, Pokrinska Pavlina, and I'm delighted to have you with me. We've got a great program lined up for you. We'll be taking another look at museums in Ukraine uh, on Ukrainian Jewish heritage uh, since there is quite a bit going on, uh, and we've been talking about that quite a bit on the program, so just a bit of a refresher on museums. As well, we've got an interesting interview with the commanding officer of the fourth rotation of Operation Unifier, which just uh, completed in March of this year. And this is Operation Unifier is the Canadian Armed Forces mission to help Ukraine in their fight against Russian aggression. So stay tuned for that. He's got some great insights into what's going on there. As well, we've got our usual proverb of the week, other items of interest, and great Ukrainian music. And coming up next is a song that was made popular uh, originally during the Orange Revolution and uh, has remained popular um, through Maidan and still now, given the current circumstances in Ukraine. Uh, the song is was originally performed, um, I believe composed as well, by Mandre, and uh, it this version is by a duo, Lilia Bahri and Nazari Karabinovich. The song is called Nispe Moyaridna Zemlya, Do Not Sleep, My Native Land. Де квітне дивний сад, де срібля станіч, тремтить у темних водах, у далекий край лежить нелегкий шлях, доки хижаніч кружля по колу. Не спи, моя 
земля, прокинься, моя Україно, відкрий свої очі у світлі далеких зірок. Це дивляться з темних небес загиблі поети герої, всі ті, що поклали життя за майбутнє твоє. To the foresight and generosity of its donors, the Taras Shevchenko Foundation has been investing in the future of the Ukrainian-Canadian community for over 50 years. Since 1963, the Taras Shevchenko Foundation has been funding initiatives that strengthen our Ukrainian-Canadian identity and enhance our Ukrainian-Canadian cultural heritage. These include fine and performing arts and arts groups, museums, cultural centers, education, as well as authors, journalists, and the Ukrainian-Canadian media, including this program. The Foundation strives to become the premier not-for-profit foundation in a Canada which acknowledges the Ukrainian-Canadian community as a fundamental component of Canadian society. Nash Hollis listeners are encouraged to support this vision through continued donations into the future. To apply for grants, make a donation, or for more information, visit ShochenkoFoundation.com. Hey, 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 hey. 
group by the name of Korinya, and that means roots, incidentally, and the song was about a girl, and the title matches the topic. The song is called Marichka. Up next, from London, England, Stepan Pasichnik, also known as Ludwig, and here he is with one of his original compositions, and it deals with the situation in Ukraine right now. It is called There's Two Kinds of People. Condemnation, condemnation Doesn't change the situation Putting Hitler off today Who knows his final destination Now they all express concern The situation is unstable And they say we should return To the negotiation table Never heard the terms invasion Occupation, annexation, indecision, all resulting in complete capitulation. Then they'll all repeat their lies again to try to justify that for the greater good of all, a country's freedom was denied. There's two kinds of people that we've got in this world. There's those who fight for change. It's got to stay the same There's two kinds of people that we've got in this world There's those who fight for truth And those who find the reasons There's nothing you can do So which of them are you? As was many times before We've got to see this to the end To stand together yet alone Freedom to defend They say the times have changed But if we're talking of Ukraine Stalin's, Hitler's and now Putin's Real intentions stay the 
same Be sure of this, ye leaders of the West You'll have to see Your cowardice in history Recalled eternally Your children and descendants Will disown you and your names Ashamed that you betrayed A sovereign country called Ukraine There's two kinds of people that we've got in this world There's those who fight for change And those who find the reasons It's got to stay the same There's two kinds of people that we've got in this world There's those who fight for truth And those who find the reasons There's nothing you can do So which of them are you? Dependent on dictatorship is here The gas they sell you hates you But you have to live in fear So free yourselves from all The devil Putin has to sell Then hopefully he'll leave us be And crawl back into hell There's two kinds of people that we got in this world There's those who fight for change And those who find the reasons It's got to stay the same There's two kinds of people that we got in this world There's those who fight for truth And those who find the reasons There's nothing you can do So which of them are you? There's two kinds of people that we've got in this world There's those who fight for change And those who find the reasons It's got to stay the same There's two kinds of people that we've got in this world There's those who fight for truth And those who find the reasons There's nothing you can do So which of them are you? And now for a look at Ukraine's rich Jewish heritage, then and now, brought to you by the Ukrainian Jewish Encounter based in Toronto, Ontario. Welcome to Ukrainian Jewish Heritage on Nash Holos Ukrainian Roots Radio. I'm Peter Baker. How do you tell a story? Museums are essential places where stories about nations and cultures are told. But they are also places where the story may not be fully told. Or the story may need to be retold. There has been a global boom in new museums. There are new technologies and new ways to tell a story, especially with interactive multimedia formats. Museum visitors are no longer just passive consumers of information. This museum boom is now reaching Eastern Europe and fresh ideas about museums are facing new challenges in rapidly changing societies in that region. History and rethinking history and retelling history is complicated in post-communist societies, controversial and often painful. Recently, the Center for Urban History of East Central Europe in Lviv tackled the issues of museums telling or not telling the story. What are the challenges that Ukrainian museums face 
when including Jewish history into the dominant narrative of their exhibitions. A public program called Jewish Days in the City Hall, undisplayed past in Eastern European museums, featured researchers and museum experts from Ukraine, Poland, Israel, Russia, and the United States. The focus was on emerging trends in museum practices. A crucial point discussed was how to create inclusive narratives on societies with a multicultural heritage. Examples were drawn from the stories Jewish museums in Eastern Europe are now telling us. One compelling example was provided by Marcin Wodzinski. He is a historian and professor of Jewish studies at the University of Wroclaw in Western Poland. His special fields of interest are Jewish material culture and the social history of Jews in 19th century Eastern Europe. Wodzinski's lecture focused on the Museum of the History of Polish Jews that was opened in Warsaw in 2014. He explained how guiding principles and considerations of history shaped the museum. He outlined how the museum emerged from public debates on the Jews and Polish-Jewish relations, both academic and popular. All this has direct relevance to Ukrainian museums now grappling with similar challenges. Wodzinski noted the proposed museum started with the advantage of having no collection. But it started with a story, a powerful story. And the story was to be a museum of Jewish life and not a memorial to a gravesite. He pointed out the museum avoided a lachrymose approach, where Jewish history is presented as only that of victims. The Jewish story is not only of suffering. The museum consulted with historians and specialists for years to develop the story it wanted to tell before opening. A thousand years of Polish-Jewish history was divided into chapters. Museum space was parceled out to these chapters and reflected in structured galleries of exhibits. There is a narration of events guided by documents of the time, but the story told is in the voice of historians in the 21st century. Wodzinski noted that a museum does not have to be based on objects of display. A story does not come from objects, but historical artifacts bring to a museum an essential feeling of authenticity. The trick is to integrate artifacts effectively into museum space. And sometimes you learn from mistakes. One of the most challenging issues for the museum was dealing with the slippery and often changing meaning of identity. Polish Jews, like Ukrainian Jews, lived among non-Jews who were often divided for long periods by different empires, states, and ruling languages. A so-called Polish Jew living in Berlin was identified as such because he might be wearing traditional Jewish dress. Just as a so-called German Jew in the once Austrian imperial city of Lemberg, now Lviv, was called that because he wore contemporary urban clothing. The problem of identification is complex and it is difficult to categorize. Finding answers is not easy. Wodzinski was asked what advice he would offer to those creating a future museum of Ukrainian Jews. He said you would be criticized for whatever you choose. But he stressed that what the Polish museum was trying to get done was not choosing the least controversial approach. On the contrary, they are showing the problem of definition. Wodzinski underlined that there are difficult choices, 
but they are all the more fascinating to study and present. People are not made by one choice, they reminded us. People break identities, refrain from an identity, and change identities. For this very reason, Wodzinski believes a museum of Ukrainian Jews could be a fascinating story. From all this, we can conclude, as Wodzinski's lecture at the Chapter for Urban History stated, that modern museums are, quote, mirrors carried along the high road, unquote. And just like novels, they reflect the ways contemporary individuals and societies see themselves and how they portray each other. And as times change, the mirror changes as do those who look into the mirror to see themselves. This has been Ukrainian Jewish Heritage on Nash Hollis Ukrainian Roots Radio. From San Francisco, I'm Peter Baker. Until next time, Shalom. Ukrainian Jewish Heritage is brought to you by the Ukrainian Jewish Encounter based in Toronto, Ontario. To find out more about their work, visit their website and follow them on Facebook and Twitter. Transcripts and audio files of this and earlier broadcasts of Ukrainian Jewish Heritage are available at their website, ukrainianjewishencounter.org, as well as at the Nasholos website, www.nasholos.com.
and the inimitable Ron Cahoot and Buria with a classic song that uh, he composed and probably is, maybe you could call it their signature tune, and it is called Fly Kozak. Up next is uh, another rockabilly band from Ukraine. They are called Otvinta, and here they are with Nashi Chlopsi Navini, our boys going to war. This is CHMB, AM 1320, Vancouver. 
Lieutenant Colonel Chris Reeves was born and raised on Cape Breton Island. He enrolled in the Canadian Armed Forces in 1996 and graduated from the Royal Military College in 2001 with a degree in business administration. He also holds a master's degree in defense studies. Lieutenant Colonel Reeves has been deployed at home and abroad, including in the United Kingdom and the United States. He did two tours in Afghanistan and most recently was deployed as the task force commander for Operation Unifier in Ukraine from September 2017 to March 2019. Lieutenant Colonel Reeves has kindly taken time out of his busy schedule to tell us about his experience in Ukraine and what Operation Unifier is all about. So thank you, Colonel Reeves, for spending time with us and welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thank you. And it's nice that you speak Ukrainian. So I understand that you've discovered some roots. We have. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe we could get into that a little bit later, but certainly preparing for the mission, I realized that I do have some Ukrainian roots and I was able to explore that uh, while I was deployed. Well, being a Canadian, that most people do have find some Ukrainian roots somewhere or another. <laughs> I, I think they do, whether by blood or by choice. Exactly. So, um, Nationalist listeners are certainly aware of uh, the conflict in Ukraine. And uh, this is, of course, the warlike situation caused by ongoing aggression from neighboring Russia since 2014. And they're also aware, if only vaguely, that the Canadian Armed Forces has been providing considerable military assistance since shortly after hostilities began. And it's, I recall it was a bit of a contentious issue, uh, Colonel Reeves, uh, with some members of the Ukrainian community, and myself a little bit, I have to admit, that the focus was on non-lethal assistance as opposed to lethal assistance. Mm -hmm. So can you give us, first of all, I guess, a two-part question. Can you give us a brief overview of Operation Unifier and also Mm -hmm. why it chose this route? So Operation Unifier is Canada's contribution. In fact, it's the military contribution to a larger Um, set of aid that we do provide Ukraine. Uh, It's truly a partnership. And the military piece that we do is a training mission. And so what what we're trying to do is work with Ukrainians every day across all of their armed forces, Army, Navy, Air Force, even special operations. And we work, train, teach, mentor, coach uh, Ukrainian officers, um, senior non-commissioned officers and soldiers daily. And so we've established a set of goals together that we want to get to. But really, at the end of the day, we are there in a non-lethal capacity. So we're back from the front lines, uh, helping Ukraine's military achieve its goals for capability and for reform. Okay, so I guess that that brought the the notion to my mind that Mm -hmm. if if you had actually gone there and provided lethal equipment and went to battle, that's, that's a declaration of war. And that's pretty, that's pretty scary stuff. Well, it, it's definitely, I would say, strategically complicated. That's for sure. I think what gets wrapped up into the lethal versus non-lethal debate was, okay, there's Canada's response. And then out of that response is, okay, what's our own Canadian military's role going to be there? And so between, uh, I would say, discussions, potentially negotiations between the two governments, it was deemed that, at least for the Canadian Armed Forces, our best role was to help train. And I think that's because Ukraine was taking a very long-term view. They were able to, you know, with considerable loss, uh, certainly, but they were able to stem the advance of Russian aggression in the East uh, on their own with some help. Mm-hmm. Um, and now they, I think they were looking beyond those initial first couple of years to how do they become more powerful as a military? How do they become more like NATO? And Canada signed on for a long-term partnership. 
And so, again, I think lethal aid and non-lethal aid kind of worked into that those strategic conversations. Mm-hmm. But as a military officer, my orders were to go there and provide the best training I could. And we certainly did that. Yes. So you went in September. How long do the deployments last? So our, our, our deployments are generally about six months long. Okay. And that seems might seem a bit short, but you have to remember that for us to do the best job that we can while we're, we're there, mm-hmm. we do at least six months of training prior to deploying to Ukraine, oh, wow. and that's making sure our own yeah making sure our own skills are where they need to be, building our teams from their previous tasks, mm-hmm. rebuilding those teams, and then then we add a real heavy dose of cultural learning and understanding. We start working with language assistants, trying to understand the language ourselves. And then really figuring out, okay, mm-hmm. where's Ukraine's military right now? Mm-hmm. Because I think anybody who's ever done any teaching or coaching, you have to know your partners or your students or your teammates, you know, intimately to mm-hmm. do the best job you can. So we spend a good, good amount of time getting ready. And then we deploy working nearly 24 hours a day for six months while we're there. And then, you know, the Ukrainian teams move through our training centers and then back to the front lines. So they're certainly... They don't have it any easier than we do, that's for sure, and it's quite a bit harder. But we do put a lot of effort into that year-long commitment, uh, and then we we tag off and hand it over to another group of Canadians. I see. So that's that's why there are four rounds. That's right. Four rotations. Four we rotations. Call them. Yeah. Right. And, okay. And now we're on to our fifth rotation now. I commanded rotation four, which was really interesting. We inherited uh, two training lo- locations, two training sites. And over time and support of the Canadian government and also the Ukrainian community in Canada, support lobbying with with our own folks, there was a lot of interest and support generated. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to move out into uh, eight new locations around Ukraine. um, And we had people working at at the the general staff level, working with generals. And we had soldiers working with soldiers down at the soldier level and, and everywhere in between. So quite fascinating. We got to see a lot of the countryside. Uh, worked in a lot of locations and actually made some lifelong friends. So where were the locations? Where did you go? Well, we started originally in uh, Lviv, which I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with that part of Western Ukraine. Beautiful, gorgeous city. Mm -hmm. Um, And often, I would be honest with you, when you're in Lviv, you wonder, where's the war? Because it's Mm -hmm. very different from what's happening uh, in the east in Donbass. And also very different from the cultural pressures and oppression, really, that's happening in Crimea. So Lviv is beautiful, but at the same time, we are reminded daily that there is a major war going on in the east, and the soldiers that we're training either come straight out of the east or they're going right back into into the fight. Mm-hmm. So we, we worked there. We also had elements down in, in the south towards Kemiets Podoliski, mm-hmm. doing some engineering training, beautiful area down there as well. But really, by the end of our rotation, we moved out into all these other locations, some Russian-speaking, um, some central Ukraine, in Odessa, up to Kharkiv, uh, Desna, which is north of Kiev, and, and a lot of places in between. A lot of, a lot of neat little towns, uh, including even uh, my grandfather's hometown. <laughs> which was that? Uh, well, there's a little town called Khorotskiv, uh, which is in Ternopil Oblast. And that's, as I found out while I was there, where my roots come from. Horodskiv. Okay, well, my, my maternal grandparents come from Horodenka, so it sounds like a, probably we're neighbors. Or, yeah. <laughs> who knows, we might be related distantly. <laughs> even better, even better. So, so you were at these eight different locations, and so mm-hmm. how big was, like, how many people did you command? We had uh, about 250 to 270 Canadian soldiers in Ukraine, which may seem 
uh, like not a large number given the size of the Ukrainian military. But these these are all senior instructors, senior sergeants, uh, officers, and all strategically placed in the different training systems to be able to provide mentorship. So, you know, we were coming in contact with thousands of Ukrainian soldiers monthly, mm. and we were doing some pretty interesting things, like uh, we were working on very discrete skills like counter improvised explosive disposal. We were working on sniper training, but we were also working on things like decision making on how to move large formations of forces around the country, helping to mentor how artillery and tanks and armor and aircraft work together. So we're really working the whole gamut. Paulina, also towards the end of the mission, we were asked to move into the military academies. So we had officers and uh, senior non-commissioned officers that were helping with the professors at the military academies teach the young uh, Ukrainian officers, helping them with their initial education. And that's something we're quite proud of, actually. We would have a Canadian posted at the military academy when that young, young officer is just recruited. Then we would see that officer again when he goes and assumes command of his first or her first, say, reconnaissance platoon. And then a couple years later, they'll run into Canadians at the maneuver training center. And so that kind of helps to reinforce the NATO lessons. And so we're not just seeing them in one spot. We're seeing them all along their career path. And that's kind of the model in NATO where we interact with our partners in NATO at all different rank levels. And we're trying to work with the Ukrainians in the same uh, methodology. Wow. So you noticed changes then in how the Ukrainian military then operated. What were the, some of the things that surprised you that, or that were different, it was surprisingly different to you? Well, I think one thing that did surprise me was there's still, and, and Ukrainian folks will tell you this, you know, the post-Soviet mentality is very much entrenched oh. In, oh. in the Ukrainian military. Huh. They're still struggling with not delegating down decision-making. They struggle with what we call in the army stovepipe decision-making. They do have a lot of challenges with uh, technology, incorporating technology into into the force. But I would say on the positive side, Ukraine's military today is unrecognizable from 2014. Really? It is incredibly, oh, absolutely, incredibly more powerful, very, very well kitted out when it comes to uniforms, uh, lots of young soldiers and officers who want to make a difference, who have kind of taken that spark from Maidan and turned it into a torch. Young Ukrainian soldiers are some of the most technologically uh, savvy soldiers I've ever met in my career. Hmm. So when you when you get that raw material there, it's very energizing, very exciting. You can tell I'm I kind of ready to go back at any time <laughs> and hear, work with them. I can hear yeah. that in your voice, yeah, for yeah. sure. And so we we you know that that's quite great in in a sense. So challenging, yes, post-Soviet model, and they're trying to get rid of it. But, you know, you can't turn a big ship like the Ukrainian military around uh, overnight. It does take a long time. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, they, they faced years and years of underinvestment, which your listeners would know better than me. Uh, many of them I know probably grew up in Soviet times in Ukraine. Yeah. So, you know, that's still there, but very, very capable military right now. And uh, so much so, Paulina, I would say, um, one of the other successes from the mission was we convinced the Canadian Army to allow one of my platoons from Canada to fly over and be trained alongside the Ukrainians. So this platoon wasn't, yeah, this platoon wasn't doing the training. 
they were there to be trained. And, you know, part of it was what we call mentoring through modeling. So they would show how a Canadian infantry platoon would accomplish tasks and how they would do work in the business of, of the profession of arms. But, you know, their boss on the training exercise was a Ukrainian commander. And talk about, you know, the message getting out there that we were serious from a point of view of being true partners. Um, if you want to believe in your product, then, you, you know, you kind of put your own, yeah. your own troops through it. Yeah. yeah, so that platoon uh, was really, really great bunch of uh, men and women to talk to now that we're all back in Canada. And we're trying to get them to share their experience with the rest of us here in Petawawa. Wow, that, that is mm-hmm. interesting. Actually, I, I recall just reading something. There's a, a quick headline somewhere on, on social media about mm-hmm. uh, about Canadians learning. It was not a, a one-way mm-hmm. kind of thing. It was definitely right. of mutual benefit to both armies. That's right, Pauline. It really is a two-way street. I'm, Ukraine is on the front lines of what we call hybrid warfare with Russia. Right. And so the way um, that country, that aggressive country is doing everything it can to kind of undermine the nationhood of Ukraine. You know, the Ukrainian forces are seeing that every day. In Mm -hmm. fact, all of the Ukrainian government. So for us to participate and understand how they're doing as well as they're doing in that environment, we can't help but learn from them. And so it is a two-way street. We learn from Mm -hmm. the Ukrainian army as much as they learn from us. Mm -hmm. It's encouraging to Mm -hmm. hear that you see a vast improvement because, uh, you know, I've been been hearing stories right from 2013, 2014 about corruption in the the military. Well, and before, of course, uh, about corruption Mm -hmm. in the the military and um, a lot of, uh, you know, the the clothing, for example, and and goggles and things that we sent didn't all make it to the people that it was intended for. I ended up Mm -hmm. on the black market and that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. you saw a reduction in the corruption um, levels in the militaries? It, that, that is a tough question that, you know, to answer, I think it's because, I mean, if I saw corruption and there was something I could do about it, then I would have, I would act on that. Right. I've heard it enough times that I have to believe that there is corruption mm-hmm. in the Ukrainian military. Mm-hmm. But I also think there is a lot of inefficiency. Oh. And that again, goes back to just how they're structured and how under, under resourced they are. And so that inefficiency, that's a real challenge that they're working on. Yeah. Contributing factor, factor as well, it, it probably, really is. to it. Yeah. You know, because the international community wants to just, I hate to use the cliche, but I will. The international community wants to give all the fish it needs to the Ukrainian military. But what we really need to do is teach them how to fish. Yeah. And so we want, to, we want our aid to go right to the front lines, of course, because we want to save lives and we want the Ukrainian military to be ultimately effective on mm-hmm. the battlefield. Mm-hmm. But in the long-term view, it's a lot harder to change the entire system in there. And that's really what Canada's mission is focused on, is long-term reform. Cognizant of the fight that's happening, but we do have to take a long-term view of things. And so it does come down to an operation of you know, incremental gains, uh, but we did see a lot of progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we sure did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, the um, Operation Unif- Unifier um, was originally, I think, scheduled to go through until 2017, and but then it was extended. And it's mm-hmm. now we're looking at 2019 for the end of the operation? Or is that, again, kind of just a goalpost that might be moved? Well, officially... The government mandate does expire in March 19. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as a soldier, that is what I understand to be the end date. But I also know, you know, as an educated Canadian and also an agent of the government, that it, there is a process of renewal. So I, I would imagine over the summer and into the fall, 
government will review all of the missions mm-hmm. that we have that that are coming up for renewal or or review mm-hmm. uh, and then you know i think with um with the right conditions it would be renewed but i that's not something i could comment on sure. so what yeah. we try to do is we plan as if the mission will be renewed so that we have an understanding of where we're trying to get to, ah. but we only make commitments up to the end of the government mandate because that is the rules. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. So, but, mm-hmm. well, that, that is certainly encouraging. We all kind of hope that the war will end by then. That would be really good. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it certainly would be. Yeah. yeah. So you served for, for six months in Ukraine and you just mm-hmm. finished. You just, just got home and... Just got home, and yeah. And I want to go back already. <laughs> yeah. And we do. And I think hope the next time I go back, if I don't go back in a military capacity, I'll be able to bring my family with me. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? Now, you, speaking of which, uh, they have Ukrainian roots because you do. Tell us a little bit about that. Must have been useful, I guess, when you were training to go over. Yeah, it was. Once I uh, was identified to command the mission, I started to remember, hey, I grew up eating Varenicki and cabbage <laughs> rolls and kibasa and, and I remember, you know, some very uh, great dancers in and, and Cape Breton, yeah, but didn't really grow up Ukrainian, well, what I remember. Okay, but this was going on in Cape Breton Island? Serious? Yeah, yeah, we have a, we have a real multicultural community in Cape Breton, and especially in, a, in the industrial heart of the island, in Sydney, and, and in particularly a place called Whitney Pier, surrounded the coal mines and the steel plant down there, huh. and so that's where I grew up, and... Before I went over, I did some digging and I I located my grandfather's birth certificates and great grandfather's marriage certificates, and uh, I realized it was all written in Polish, so I wasn't quite sure how things were going to work. But I brought it all with me anyway, and a couple of weeks into the mission, I was able to sit down with some of my team and we translated it all, and of course. A uh, big chunk of Ukraine back in the days when my grandfather immigrated was all Galicia. Yeah. It was all yeah. part of Poland at the time. Yeah. And so we realized that my grandfather's hometown was a mere 200 kilometers from my main camp on the way to another camp. So we jumped in our vehicles mm-hmm. and we went down and did a surprise cold call to the mayor and his team uh, in that little town, Horoskiv. Oh, neat. Yeah, knocked on the door, told them who I was, and they kind of looked at me uh, a little weird. And, <laughs> and then so t- kind of told my story or what I knew, knew of it. And then after a little while, I got the impression that everybody was really busy and had to get back to work, So and, and probably I did as well. Um, <laughs> and so I asked, you know, okay, what's happening now? And they said, well, we're calling uh, the Volodkas, and which is my grandfather's <gasps> last name. And I said, oh, okay, well, which one? And they said, all of them. Oh. <laughs> and I guess there was like hundreds in that air, in that region. So they were trying to, they were checking church records and phone books, trying to see if anybody knew anything about my family. Oh. Um, yeah, it was really neat. But what was really cool was the mayor invited me into his office and they were asking me for more information. So I said, well, you're, you're really starting to stump me. Maybe we could just call grandpa right now. So we called him. He's 94 years old. I said, Grandpa, uh, I'm here. He's like, Christopher, where are you? I'm like, well, I'm in Mikhrotskov. I'm in your hometown in Ukraine. He's like, where? (laughs) And uh, we have him on speakerphone. And he starts, Paulina, he starts to remember the memories of him growing up. And he said, okay, well, you know, mom lived on one side of the secret river and his dad lived on the other side and his uncle was in the gendarmerie and the police force. And, and then, uh, 
there wasn't really a dry eye in the room at that point. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was really neat. And it only got, it only gets better. Yeah, so. precious memory. Ah. Well, and, the, and as it turned out, the town uh, really embraced that. So about three weeks later, we were able to conduct a visit with about 55 of our troops. And we went down and spent a weekend with that town. It was Cossack Day, so any day of the Defender in October. Oh, wow. uh, we had a great cultural exposition. Uh, we played soccer against some of the vets from the front that were home on leave. Uh, the whole task force went to church together. Uh, it was really, really neat, really neat. And it set the tone for the rest of the mission, for sure. Yeah. So you, you, want, you want to go back. What would be the likelihood that you would go back to serve another tour there? I would definitely go back to surf. Absolutely would go back to surf if I could. Uh, I'd like to see a point in the future where Ukrainian soldiers are coming to Canada regularly to train, that Canada is going to Ukraine regularly to train, and that we serve um, alongside together on international missions around the world. I I would love to see that. That would mean that the war in Donbass is over, and the Ukrainian military is able to focus on international efforts. And so there's quite a few things that would have to happen at that point, but... Definitely, I would like to see that in the future. Oh, well, let's hope that Mm -hmm. it does happen soon, and you do see that. Mm -hmm. And we see it, too. So Mm -hmm. thank you so much for sharing uh, your experiences, and uh, hope you do get to go back and hope our paths can cross sometimes, too. Thank you so much again, Colonel Reeves. You're welcome. You're welcome. It's been my honor. Lieutenant Colonel Chris Reeves, the commanding officer of the 4th Rotation of Operation Unifier, the Canadian Armed Forces mission to support the armed forces of Ukraine defending against Russian aggression in eastern Ukraine. That rotation ended in March 2018, with Colonel Reeves and his team returning home to Petawawa. We spoke on May 1, 2018. Up next, the Kubasonics from Newfoundland, uh, the closest we could get to Cape Breton Island uh, for Ukrainian music. Here they are now from their most recent CD, Kubfunland, with Honey Viter.
Here's what's coming up this week in Vancouver's Ukrainian community. Nash Holos airs in international syndication on PCJ Radio International, broadcasting to over 20 countries on AM, FM, shortwave, and satellite radio. On Wednesdays, catch Nash Holos Ukrainian Roots Radio, broadcasting live from Nanaimo to North and Central Vancouver Island, the Gulf Islands, the Sunshine Coast, Northwest Washington State, and in the Greater Vancouver Listening Area. Join me, Paulina, for the first hour in English, and Oksana Poparajnik for the second hour in Ukrainian. That's Wednesdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Pacific Time on CHLY 101.7 FM on the radio dial and streaming online at chly.ca. And at 6 p.m. Saturday evenings, flip your dial right back here to AM 1320 CHMB Vancouver or catch the live stream at am1320.com. And join me, Pavlina, for another hour of fun on Nash Holos Ukrainian Roots Radio. Please send dedications, requests, and suggestions to producer at nashholos.com. Your comments are always welcome. In between broadcasts, follow Nash Holos on Facebook, Twitter, and our blog. And for audio archives, transcripts, podcast feeds, and more, visit our website at www.nashholos.com. here in the Fraser Valley. That was the Ukrainian Delsimer Ensemble with Who Stole the Kishka. For the very best in Ukrainian programming, tune in to Nasholos Ukrainian Roots Radio Saturdays from 6 to 7 p.m. on our flagship show here in Vancouver on AM 1320 CHMB on the radio dial and online at am1320.com. In between broadcasts, please visit us at www.nasholos.com. If you miss the live radio transmissions of the show, that's where you can get the podcast links, as well as other audio files, transcripts, and more. There's also a link to our Patreon site, which I hope you'll consider following and engaging with me there 
there, as well as supporting the show. Incidentally, you can also support the show at no cost through the Amazon links found at the Nosh Holos website. Again, that's www.noshholos.com. I love to hear from you, so please send in your suggestions, dedications, and requests. Your comments are always welcome. Kto zlov svojemu žeti robit, to netilke sobi, a in rodovi svojemu škodit. And our proverb of the week translates as, Whoever does evil hurts not only himself, but also his nation. And with that, we've come to the end of our program. So one last toe-tapper to wrap it up, the Canadian Rhythm Masters from Winnipeg and the Great Plains Kolomika. I'm Pavlina. On behalf of all of us here at Nash Hollis and AM 1320, thanks for listening and Dobranich. Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.